Hey, what's up guys? Welcome to City Church. I want to invite you to connect with us on social media, get live stream service notifications, access podcasts, and up-to-date information on upcoming events. We're so glad you're joining us for a powerful, life-transforming message from one of our pastors here at City Church. We would love to hear how God is impacting your life through this ministry. Please share your experience with us by emailing prayer at citychurch.life. If you'd like to be a part of what City Church is doing in our city and beyond, you can contribute financially by going to citychurch.life forward slash give and choosing the giving option that works best for you. We consider resources like this to be supplemental and not a replacement for community. If you live in the Savannah area, please consider joining us for service. We hope you enjoy this message. Welcome to week four of Not Safe for Work, and we have a series where we're trying to talk about relationships, and the truth is that when we get into the Word of God and we start looking at what does a biblical relationship look like, uh, whether that is marriage, dating, or even just how we do friendships one with another, a lot of times it is counterintuitive to the kind of the structure that the world has when it comes to relationships. And so it becomes one of those conversations that's like not safe for work because it's offensive, uh, because there become new expectations. Uh, and so we've been in this for three weeks. Today we're going to wrap up this series and we're going to be talking a little bit about love uh, as we are wrapping this up, and I hope that you'll be ministered to today. I want to take a moment and say uh, hello to anybody that's watching online, uh, whether you're watching right now, today, or in the future. We appreciate uh, you uh, engaging with this conversation. We love you guys. Can we make everybody watching online feel welcome this morning? You know, sometimes people are traveling and they aren't able to be here and they'll watch online and they'll tell me during the week that, hey, I wasn't able to be there Sunday, but I was watching. And so we really appreciate the continued engagement in the conversation. So uh, uh, have you ever been in a relationship and had a really difficult time speaking truth? Have you ever been in a relationship where you were uh, needing to say something, but you didn't really know how to say it? This was somebody you actually cared about and you felt like, like, like you needed to bring something into the relationship. You needed to start a conversation because you kind of get the feeling that, that if you don't, there's going to be uh, some, some ramifications that kind of show up later in the relationship. This is a difficult thing for us to do. Uh, but the reason that, that, when we're in a relationship and we care enough to begin to speak truth or we begin to dive into the conversation and say some of the hard things is because we care about the person. Now, I wanna tell you that when it comes to the idea of love, uh, a lot of times uh, we have a broken perspective on love. And this is, and remember, we've been talking about from the very beginning of the year that there is an adversary, the Satan, and you can go back and watch that series that we did in January on the uh, uh, unseen realm, but there's an adversary that is at work uh, to prevent us from being uh walking in right standing with God or ultimately walking into our true calling, walking into a place of purpose. And that adversary is at work in a lot of different ways. And, and one of those is to corrupt those things that God has created, the things that God has set out. And so we laid some of those some of those different types of corruptions out over the past uh, couple of months on how God, he created things that were good and the adversary shows up and shows us what is evil, right? We have life coming from God. And what is, what is it we get from the adversary? We get death. And there's a, there's a, there's a constantly like a, a counterpart to what God is doing from the adversary. And love is no different, right? So when you look up the word love uh, and get a definition for it, I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, the, the first one that comes up is an intense feeling of deep affection. And it gives an, an example, uh, babies 
fill parents with feelings of love. And then the second one was a great interest and pleasure in something, his love for football. And Remember how we talked about, like, we use this word God and it just kind of has this certain meaning to us, but that we superimpose our version or our definition, uh, a Western definition into the scriptures. So every time we see the word God, we kind of superimpose how, what we see God as being into it. And a lot of times the Hebrew writers, they did not see it the same way, right? And, and this is true when it comes to this concept around love. And we bring love into this kind of perspective of being about the good times, right? So, so I, I love it when things are going easy, when things are good. Uh, and, and the people that I love, I'm in harmony with them. I really love them when there is happiness, right? And, and then we bring these feelings of love into intimacy, right? And if we just want to get completely honest, like we could break intimacy down into a lot of different like levels. Uh, but when we move to the kind of the, the deepest portion of intimacy, we even bring this concept of love into sex and it's based on how I'm feeling, right? What, what makes me feel like I am attracted to that individual or that they are attracted to me. And the truth is that if we'll get in those moments, right, and we'll start thinking about how our uh, emotions are operating, we'll, we'll come to the realization that we don't always feel like we love people, right? This, this happens, and, and maybe, maybe you have this misconception in your mind, but if you're married, you understand what I'm talking about. Like the feeling of love is not always there when you're married, right? There are times when your spouse, is, is, there are moments where you're not feeling that love, right? I see giggles happening right now. Couples are not making eye contact. They're all just kind of looking at me at the moment because they, they totally understand what that emotional aspect is like, right? So, so the, the reality is, is when we get to those moments where we're not feeling it, where the emotions are not there, we need to start doing some research to try to figure out, you know, like there's evidence of this, but what's actually causing it, right? I see that there's the evidence of not feeling like I'm in love today, but what is causing that rift or what is it that's separating those emotions uh, in my own life? And, and can I tell you that if you want to get really honest, right, and you start looking at the evidence, what you're going to realize is that you were not created to be in one emotional state at all times. And so when you are not feeling it today, it's because you are operating exactly how you were created. God did not make you so that you would look at one person and always feel one emotion with them. It wouldn't be a relationship then because see, a relationship draws on all of our emotions. We want to talk about love. We want to talk about hate, right? Well, how can we know what love is if we don't know what hate is, right? How can we measure these emotions that are good if we don't have an experience with emotions that are bad? And, and so really what becomes the test or the measurement for a relationship is how am I able to walk through the really difficult moments? How am I able to walk through the seasons where the emotions are not happiness and joy, but maybe maybe their anger or distrust or negativity, and can I get to the other side? And, and I want to tell you that in my own life, uh, it took me a while to figure out what my own capacity was inside of the relationship, right? Who, who it was that, that, that I was bringing to the relationship. And, and I, I'll tell you that a lot of times, especially uh, in mine and Carmen's earlier years of being married, right? So just a little bit of perspective in case you are unaware. Carmen and I have known each other for a very long time. We met when we were 13 years old. We were married when we were 20. We celebrated our 20th anniversary this last year. And uh, we have four kids and we love our kids and we dote on our kids and we discipline our kids and we discipline our kids. I just don't want you to think it's all fun and games. There's disciplining in there, right? And so we have this family and we are a happy family and we are not unlike you in a lot of ways. I do not pull out my camera and Instagram the whippings, right? The whoopings. 
I don't, I don't bring the beating into the Facebook, right? You know what I'm saying? So, so when you scroll through Instagram and you scroll through Facebook, what you are seeing are glimpses of the emotions of happiness. I'm not playing on the emotions of distress or hurt or even sadness as our kids have walked through loss in their lives on various levels. And, and, and so, so for, for myself, I've had to learn who I am and how what I bring to the relationship. And in those earlier years of marriage, I used to measure where, I, where my relationship with my wife was based on where our levels of intimacy were. And I, I want to tell you, I'm being really transparent in, in, in the moment because I want you to understand that that was super, super shallow. And I can, from this side of my relationship, see that. But it was absolutely the measuring stick that I was using. And the reason was because the world around me tells me constantly that sex is this major measuring stick for my relationship and that sex is the consuming part of my relationship. And so because there is so much sex in the world around me, in the TV shows, in the movies, in the music that we listen to, in the news stories, I mean, I challenge you to go to your favorite media outlet and try to scroll through the, the, the headlines and, and try to see that there is not going to be some news story talking about something somebody's doing sexually, right? This is just, it's constantly put in front of us. And I had to learn that that was not God's plan, that that wasn't the picture that he was giving me inside of scripture. And I needed to stop measuring this, taking this measurement of intimacy and laying it over onto the, the condition of where I was at with my wife. And, and you know what? Carmen and I had some really open and honest and very difficult conversations for quite a while to be able to navigate through that. Okay, again, just a moment of transparency. And so going through this series, Not Safe for Work, and talking about relationships, I, I want you to know that, that these, are, these are not, this isn't just information that I'm just kind of regurgitating to you from Scripture, but these are actually principles that I've had to lay into my own life, right? And the first week we, uh, we talked about identity, right? And how we find our identity in relationships. Adam discovered exactly who he was when he was in relationship with Eve. And I would tell you today that there have been a number of relationships in my life that have helped me to discover who I am. And, 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 and those relationships didn't all come to me uh, in kindergarten, right? And so part of me discovering who I am has been, been a part of the journey of living life. And so there have been relationships that I have walked in with people who I consider to be really close friends, people I would say, man, I love them, and I have walked away hurt. It has created this ability to measure inside of me when I have hurt people. And I would say that the greatest relationship here on earth that I have had has been with my wife. And I would tell you this today, that I would not be standing here on this platform doing what I'm doing if it were not for her, if it were not for the constant love and support that I get from my wife and the continued support that I have in her and through her. And so for these, these are things that, that, that help me understand who I am right? And then the, the second week, we, we talked about having this perspective when it comes to relationships falling apart, and then using that to, to kind of look at our relationship with God. And so we will have relationship. We talked about Hosea and how he was married to a prostitute, and she was unfaithful, and he had all these natural emotions. Can I tell you, when people hurt us, when people do us wrong, and, and we get angry, that is completely normal. That is a natural process. And in Hosea chapter 2, like, he lays it out. He's like, I'm mad. I wish, I wish that she were dead. That's what he says. He says, I will make sure she dies, right? And so when we hear somebody use that kind of language, right, they're going through heartache and relationship, and they're like, I could kill them. And you're like, oh, you're not a very good Christian, right? You're a bad person. And the scripture's giving us a picture of how, like, that's a natural thing to kind of come up, but it is our relationship with God that calls that thing out. And he calls it out and he says, nonetheless, though I feel this way, I will remember that I haven't always been faithful to God. And so when relationships go south, we use the hardship in those relationships to become a 
picture for us or a mirror, if you will, into our relationship with God. And how does God feel when I act the way that I think that this person is acting or my spouse or this close friend when they're doing this thing and I'm hurting right now? Well, how does God feel when I do the exact same thing, when I ignore his instruction, when I ignore his calling on my life? And then last week, we talked about putting, kind of having the, the, putting the effort into it, the processes of what we actually do, right? And, and we were in Psalms, and, uh, uh, and we were talking about how we have to constantly turn to God's word, to God's instruction. God's instruction is the best way, and I have to constantly remind myself of this. And so this is, this is me. And so as I was working through the, today's message and I was reflecting backwards, I, I, I wrote it down like this for myself. I said, I see the me that God sees when I'm in relationship, right? The identity, the identity that God sees is the one without the masks, without all the disguises. It's the true me. And when I'm in a good, healthy relationship, some I'm walking in a relationship with somebody that God wants me to walk in a relationship, I begin to get a picture of who I am. So I see the me that God sees. And then when I'm in right relationship, I see the relationship God wants with me. So when I'm happy and thriving in relationship with people, it gives me a glimpse into how God wants my relationship with him to be. And then with last week, I wrote it out like this, like I see what God sees that I can be. God knows what I'm capable of. And so that's why he's calling me to excellence. That's why he's calling me to righteousness and faithfulness. Can I tell you, I see what my children can be, right? And so I'm not, I'm not doing certain things because I want to oppress them or I want to teach them like this mindset of like, well, I've got to teach my kids to get used to disappointment. No, not at all. Like if my kids are experiencing disappointment, I believe that it is helping them rise up to the capacities that God has given them. Right? So I want my kids to experience life in such a way that they ultimately become everything that God would have them to be. And so I create standards and expectations for them. Do you know God does the same thing for us? So today I am going to be talking about love, and I've entitled the message, What's Love Got to Do With It? Right? A little Tina Turner throwback. Uh, and if you don't know who that is, you have something I did not have when I was a kid. It's called YouTube, and you will know who Tina Turner is before you make it home today if you make any effort at all. What's love got to do with it, right? Now, how many of you in here know what I'm talking about, and you have experienced relationship hurt? You can put your hand up right now. You've experienced relationship hurt, right? So hands are going up. If, you, if you're not putting your hand up because you've never experienced relationship hurt, that is okay, all right? I think that, that before you die, you will most likely experience some type of relationship hurt. Now, whether that is through a relationship with a spouse or just through a relationship with a really good friend, you're probably gonna have somebody hurt you. We have all experienced this or we will all experience at some point in our lives. I parent this way. I, when my kids are coming home and they're talking about something that, a conversation that really hurt them in a relationship, I parent them to tell them, hey, can I tell you something? Like, I'm, I'm with you, but the truth is you will experience this time and time again in your life. There will be people who you really care about, and someday they're going to say something, and they probably don't even mean it the way that you take it, but it's going to create a rift. And if somebody doesn't step in and do the hard work of, of managing that rift, it, what happens is, is it becomes a wedge that will create separation, and ultimately you'll be sitting on the other side of it going, like, how, how are we not? Not best friends anymore. How are we not this close anymore? And this happens again through friendships. It happens inside of marriage. And so it really is about us getting to this concept of what love is, right? So what is it? And then how do we do it? Uh, the scripture, I think, does a lot uh, about a lot gives us a lot of insight into how we are to express love. It gives us insight into what love looks like. And one of the, the best passages, I think, around this comes from the Old Testament. And I just want to pause for a moment because uh, I get asked the question, like, why do we do so much teaching in the Old Testament? We're, we're under the New Covenant. Why do we constantly go back to the Old Testament? And I'll just remind you of a couple of quick things. First of all, remember that when Jesus was here and teaching, 
he taught exclusively out of the Old Testament. It was the only scripture that he had. He did not have a new a copy of the New Testament scriptures that he was teaching out of. And he, he said that he did not come to abolish the old law anyway. He came to fulfill it. So it still is applicable to us. Second thing is that the same God that we learn about in the Old Testament is the same God that we're learning about in the New Testament. So this is a continued part of his story and what uh, and his attributes, his character, and what he expects. So it's applicable. And then the third thing is that the, the actual authors of the New Testament, right, they constantly reference the Old Testament with the understanding that when they're referencing the Old Testament, that the readers already are familiar with those stories. And that's why a lot of times they don't go into great detail because there's already a lot of teaching on it. So there is a tremendous amount of value that comes from being in the Old Testament. And then I'll also say this because this was brought to my attention last week. I tend to be really uh, hard on men and I tend to kind of go after guys and call men out. And I, I, I'm not uh, in a, a position of trying to apologize for that because I think that uh, men, as a, as a man, I am more familiar with our abilities and uh, our capacities than I am with that of females. And so I'm going to continue to call men out. But can I tell you that a lot of times when we're talking about failure, uh, and I might really come down on the men, but I want to tell you that these are interchangeable, right? That uh, a, a female is just as capable of cheating, lying, deceiving as a man is, right? And so I might say that, hey, in this situation, men, you need to rise up and be a better man and be faithful. That would be completely true for the women that are in the room or listening to this as well. So it's not like it's an out for the women, and it's not about me being more you know, coming at it more difficult for men. Again, I believe this. I believe that here in our church, if our men will rise up, right? If our men will lead the way in being worshipers and being the ones that are engaged in the presence of God, that it will not necessarily transform what's happening in here. It will absolutely transform what's happening in our community. All right. And why is that? You go, well, is it because men are, are more important than women? No, it's because women are already coming into this place and lifting their hands and engaging and pressing into the presence of God. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Like when I'm talking with married couples, right, I'm, it's, it's almost always the wife is the one who's saying, maybe we should be praying together. Maybe we should be in the word. Can we watch this because it's more wholesome and more, you know, uplifting, not exclusively, but trends that way. And so I believe that if some men get on fire for Jesus in a new way and start drawing some standards, it's not going to be that they're paving a new way. It's that they're going to be in harmony with some of the women in our lives, and we're going to see transformation in our community and our city. So men, rise up. All right? I'll say it over and over, and you can punch me in the face later. I like being punched for the kingdom because God's watching. Exodus 34. So here's what we get. We actually are going to look at what, at how God describes himself. Okay. So a lot of times we look at the attributes and the character of God, and it's, these are words that are pinned from how we interact with him or what's been revealed to us. But the author here is saying, this is what God says. So uh, beginning in verse five, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So We've got a picture of what's happening here with Moses. Verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the verse that we get carved into a piece of wood and see it hanging above grandma's like kitchen door, right? Like, man, he's a good God. He's, he's loving. We don't go to the next verse, right? Because in verse seven, he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Could you imagine if grandma had had that verse kind of hanging over the doorway when you were coming in, like God's coming to get you, 
you know, we, you feel the tension that happens right here, right? I mean, we're, we're feeling this idea of like, man, God is so good. He loves me. His mercy is everlasting. And then God says, and these things are very true, but let me tell you something. Uh, the guilty are not going to get away with what they've done. And so all of a sudden we start, man, we dive into some theology and we're like, I don't know if I like that theology, Pastor Jim. I'm not into a God that's filled with anger and hate. And I, I don't receive, I don't accept that God, right? And, and God's like, oh man, so I gotta, I gotta be somebody different because they don't accept me, right? I mean, this is legitimately like when we start reading through some of how God's wrath is poured out in the Old Testament, I legitimately will have conversations with people that are like, well, I just don't believe in a God of wrath. And I'm like, so you don't believe in the God of this Bible? Is there a different Bible I'm not familiar with, right? Now, I will tell you that oftentimes it breaks down to being a problem with us not doing the work to find out what God is actually communicating, right? So can I tell you that um, I, when, uh, when I was a kid, and I've shared this before, and my grandmother, my granny, anybody got a granny? You know what I'm talking about? I'm from, I'm from Alabama, so I had a granny. And uh, when, I was, when I was out of line, when I was smarting off, right, uh, my mom and dad would have conversations. Now, that's not how we talk, right? And it would lead into some type of spanking. But granny didn't do that. She said, no, you did not. You go outside and go get a switch off that bush out there. And I would have to walk out there, and I would have to break a switch. If you don't know what a switch is, it's a very thin uh, limb coming off of a bush. And uh, she would sit there and pull all the leaves off of it. And let me tell you, too, like you would think, like, oh, that's easy. I'd go out there and get the wimpiest, weakest one you've ever done. All that meant was Granny was picking out the switch. And so I knew better. So you'd go out there and you'd bring it in and then she would switch you. And I guess that's what you call it. All I know is I called it screaming, right? Because it did not feel good, right? Right. So I knew exactly what was happening in that moment. It was not that my grandmother was, was, was trying to abuse me. It wasn't like, you know what? I've decided there hasn't been enough pain today. So I'm going to exert pain on you. Uh, in her way, she was trying to help make sure I understood there were consequences for talking to people the way that I was talking to her. Now, we live in a different age and, you know, switches are funny stories of the past because we don't, we, don't, we don't discipline our kids anymore. We like our children like we like our chickens, right? Free range, just, you know, hey, let the world do what the world will do to it, right? Can I tell you something? I want to throw something else out for you real quick, just as an illustration. You have never had free-range chicken. You think you've had free-range chicken. You go in there, you're like, I'll take some free-range chicken because there's no hormones all. You go to Kenya and get a free-range chicken, right? They call it yard bird, and it is tough. There is nothing that's good about it, and that's what they're cooking, right, is the chickens that are running around truly free-range, right, and, and it doesn't taste the same. And then when, when we have our friends from Kenya over here, and we tell them, uh, you know, you know, that we want to fix chicken, and then they have it, and they're like, this isn't chicken. This is, what is this? And they're pulling it apart. They're like, it shouldn't pull apart like this. And I'm like, yes, it should pull apart like this, right? Okay, so, so free range isn't what you think free range is. And I'm not, I'm not a, like a um, chicken scientist, so I can't like lay out all of the specifications for you. And I don't work on the free range society of stamping approval to put my free range sign of approval on it. But I can just tell you that by definition, free range looks very different. And if we allow our kids to live that way, right, there's not going to be anything tender or loving or caring about them because uh, they end up having to fight for themselves, defend themselves, and carry their wounds for the rest of their lives. And it's not a very loving thing to do. So God communicates this, and it brings some tension, right? God's talking about his own character, his own attributes, and there's some tension that comes into it because it really begins to mess with how we view God. It begins to mess with the God that we want to receive, the God that we want to be a part of our lives, because the God that's being introduced here is a God that, based on our definitions, is one that is navigating love versus justice, right? Right? 
Love being those emotions and those feelings and justice being like discipline and correction. And, and, and can I tell you, like it's really difficult to have those happy, joy, fun feelings in the midst of justice. You know what I'm saying? Like when you're in the middle of those moments, you don't feel that same like, oh, you know, like, like, like I'm going to tell you, like I've been disciplining my kids before, right? And I'm, I'm not surprised that in the midst of discipline, they're not feeling lovey-dovey, like wanting to snuggle up on daddy in the midst of the discipline, right? They're sitting there staring with big eyes because in the moment, the emotions are a little bit uh, skewed. There's a little bit of separation, right? But I want you to know that the justice that I'm bringing in that moment, the discipline that I'm bringing in that moment is actually a result of the fact that I do love them right? And so I want to make the argument that love moves far beyond this idea of how we feel and the emotions that we walk in. And to get a picture of what God is talking about, we have to go and look at this in kind of the context of the story. And this begins back in Exodus 32. So in Exodus 32, God has delivered the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, okay? Now, a little bit crash course on Egypt. This is a nation that was uh, filled with uh, pagan worship. So they had many gods. So uh, whatever was going on in your life, there was most likely a God that you specifically went and, and prayed to, to help you in that specific scenario. And so you had the God of the dirt and the God of fertility and the God of the harvest and the God of the sunshine. You had a different God and you would go and you would pay tribute, you'd make sacrifice. And there was a lot that was engaged in the way that they worship their gods. One of the really common practices was to engage in sexual uh, immorality, I think is how we would kind of kind of frame this, but they had temple prostitutes. And so in a lot of time, in a lot of places, you would actually go to the temple and the prostitutes would be on the steps that lead up to the altar where you'd make the sacrifice. And then the men would engage in sexual acts with the temple prostitutes on the temple steps as a means of somehow uh, satisfying these pagan gods. Now, if we go back and we think about the adversaries at work, his deception, his lies, all that he's trying to bring in and destroy, right? Think about what this is doing to the heart of God, who has created sex to be something that's experienced in the confines, the boundaries of marriage. It was designed for this. He introduces it this way. He puts the expectation throughout scripture on it this way. And then you have other gods that are encouraging people to be engaged in this type of sexual immorality as a way of offering sacrifice to those gods. And so these, the children of Israel come out of Egypt. They're being set free, not just from the, the, the bondage of physical chains, right? But they're being set free from the bondage of emotional chains. These things, these lies that have been presented to them are destroying the way that they are doing life. And so what God wants to do is he wants to bring them out. He wants to give them a land to be their own, and he wants to show them a better way to live, right? So He's going to give them the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments are not restrictions in the sense of like, hey, you better do this or else, but they were really uh, uh, instruction on how to have a better life. Like, if you don't kill people, everybody's going to be happier. You know what I'm saying? It's really simple. It's not complicated, right? And if you will not worship these pagan gods, these other gods, and you will only worship me because I am the one true living God, your life will be better because you will not waste your time. And so he pulls them out and he says, hey, this is what I want. I want you to be my children. I want you to do away with the old ways. I want you to walk in this type of righteousness. And he says, I want you to come up on the, on, on the mountain with me. So they're at Mount Sinai and there's a cloud, a storm that comes up over the, cloud, over the mountain. And he says, I want you to come up here. I want to be in your presence. And they're all terrified. Why are they terrified? terrified because they had gone and been a part of pagan sacrifices their entire lives. Their parents had been a part of pagan sacrifices, and no God had ever shown up in any form or fashion. And here is a God that they haven't made sacrifices to, and he shows up and says, I love you, and I want you to be mine. And there is now thunder and lightning and, and like supernatural things happening around them. So they are terrified, and they don't want to go, and they say, Moses, you go up for us. And so he's up there for 40 days, and they think, well, I guess Moses is never coming back. He's forgotten us. And so they go to, uh, to Aaron, who is 
left in charge and they say, Aaron, uh, we need to do what we know we need to do, and that is we need to make an idol and begin to worship this God because uh, Moses has not come back and we've been abandoned. And Aaron is listening to them, and they're giving a very convincing argument. And so he says, okay, give me all your gold, your earrings, everything. We're going to put it together. We're going to melt it down. And they make a idol of a golden calf, and they begin to worship, right? And in Exodus 32, verse 6, it says, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And so this word play for us is the translator's kind of uh, really kind way of letting us know that there was uh, sexual connotations to what was beginning. In fact, when Moses comes down the mountain, they will be uh, 3,000 of them will be stripped down, completely nude, running around and engaging in the practices that they were supposed to have left behind in Egypt. And, and God's upset. God says, I asked them to just wait. I asked them to lay down that way of living. There was a better way to live, and they don't care, and they need to die. And uh, Moses begins to intercede, and he says, God, please, what does he say? He says, you have entered into a covenant with them, right? You have said that you love them. Don't forget that. And God says, all right, fine. Anybody who's walking in the covenant I will forgive. Anybody who's walking in the covenant, I will love them and they will be mine. But if they are, if you get down there and they're, they are not walking in covenant, they're going to have to pay the price. And, and Moses comes down and there were 3,000 of them that had not been walking in covenant, that had participated in this idolatrous behavior. And I, I just want to point something out. We know that Aaron, who even is lying, because when Moses comes down, he says, how did this happen? He says, you just won't believe it. We put the gold in and a calf came out, right? And uh, even Aaron, who had been a part of this, right, allowed it to happen. He doesn't die, right? He's not one of the ones that gets killed. What we find is it was those that were taking those sexual practices from the old way and trying to bring them into this new way of worship and trying to justify their own behavior in the midst of it. They're the ones who lose their lives. So now we're back up on the mountain, and God says, you need to understand some things about me, right? I operate with love, but I also operate with justice, right? And we would see that and go, well, so they're two distinct things, but that's not what God's communicating here. Let's go back to verse seven. We're going to break this down real quick. So it says, keeping steadfast love for thousands. So this is God describing himself, right? And he uses this word love, right? He says, keeping this steadfast love, right? So when we go back to the interlinear and we actually look here at this uh uh, concept of love and how it's translated, you'll see that uh, the word, and, and, I, and you might not be able to see this, I hope you can, but it is the word said, and it, it translates out to be love, but it's used more frequently as like this extension of mercy because it's not an emotion word. It's not a word describing a feeling. It is, these are words that describe the covenant, right? So, when God is talking about love, he's talking about the fact that he's in covenant. That means that he's in an agreement. There's a contract that has been made. And what is that contract? That contract is this, that you will be my people and I will be your God. I will protect you. You will serve me. I'll be your only God. You'll live in righteousness and I will pursue you all your days. And when you mess up, I will be there with you because God understands right out of the gate that in this covenant, there's no way that out of our own nature, we're going to fulfill this, right? Sin, we, we are dealing with, we are dealing with the exposure to the knowledge of evil, to the knowledge that came when sin entered the world. And what does that do to us? It builds us up with shame. It causes us to get lost in our mind and our thoughts and the what ifs. Well, what if I just lived like that? What if I just did that thing? What if I participated in that? And so because we're constantly navigating this thing because we already have, have, have been broken and been made susceptible to this, God understands that in the idea of this covenant that we're going to fail from time to time. So how does God maintain this covenant? That becomes really the, the question that would immediately come to our minds is that, okay, if we're in covenant 
and he knows that we're, we're not going to be good at upholding our end of it. How does he maintain it? So he gives us an answer in the very next statement, and he says this. He says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So how does he do it? How does he maintain the covenant? How does he extend love? He does it through forgiveness. And so if we actually go back to this, uh, to the uh, transliteration here, and we're looking at it, uh, what we're going to see is that uh, when uh, it comes to forgiving, we have this word, uh, no say, and it, it actually is what it looks like here, but it's actually nasal, uh, and is the way they pronounce it. And it actually means to carry, right? So uh, when we are talking about forgiveness and when God says, to, like, like, when I'm in covenant with you, I am going to do what? I am going to carry your sin, your transgressions, your failures. Walt's going to come up here and help me. You guys make Walt feel welcome. So uh, I've asked Walt to stand in uh, the shoes of God for a moment. There's some big shoes, Walt, and there will be no judgment here except for from your wife. Um, she'll know, right? So, uh, so this is what this looks like, okay, in our lives. Because you and I are, if we are believers, what we have done is we have stepped into covenant with God. Now, we're in a new covenant. The thing that has separated the new covenant from the old covenant is, is really around the fact that the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice has been made in Jesus on the cross, right? So we don't have to keep coming and making blood sacrifices. But we are still in a covenant that is a covenant of love, and we are still in these conditions of how God, because these are his, this is his character, this is his very nature, that we are serving and in relationship with a forgiving God. And so what happens is, uh, in my life, I begin to wrestle with lust. And so I end up uh, perhaps with a porn addiction or just a wandering heart. I mean, Jesus says that if I, if I, as a man, lust after a woman in my heart, it's the same as committing adultery in his eyes, right? Now, now to us, it would be a little bit different. We, we don't put that same kind of, kind of standard on it, but the expectation from God is that we would be set free from lust. And what do we know about lust is we know that lust is really just kind of like the seed of unfaithfulness, right? When we find out that the people we care about, especially if we're in relationship like one of marriage, and we find out that they are wrestling with lust, that they are looking at pornography and lusting after other people, it breaks our heart. It hurts, right? And of course, that's an emotion that God feels when we're unfaithful. And so we have this sin that we're carrying, and we're walking around with it, and, and forgiveness looks like this. It looks like God saying, hey, I'll carry that for you. And so I don't have to carry that lust around anymore. I, don't, I can be set free from it right? That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is, this is a heavy burden. This is my failure. I'm going to hand it over to him, and that is going to release me from the shame and the guilt that comes with it, right? And maybe, maybe I'm also wrestling with a little bit of pride in my life, right? And so I've got pride, and, and maybe that shows itself in all different types of forms. Maybe it shows itself in, in the form of racism, or maybe just some arrogance at work, Maybe it shows itself when I'm, uh, 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 you know, going to, to make a purchase, right? My, my pride says, I, I got to have the best, right? It's me. I deserve the best and only the best. And we don't think about the consequences of what will happen with our finances on the other side. And then one day, this becomes really apparent to us. Like, we're, we're under conviction. Like, I am a proud person. And God says, hey, I'll take that from you if, if you'll give it up. And so in repenting, I say, God, I'm sorry. And, and God says, I'll carry that for you, right? And it doesn't stop there, you know? I mean, maybe I'm wrestling with envy. And how, how easy is this today, right? The idea of being envious of others because we have a lot to look at. We pull out our mobile devices and what do we do? We're on YouTube, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, and we're thinking to ourselves, how do they afford that vacation? How did they do that? How are they pulling it off? I want to live like they're living. I want to do what they're doing, right? I mean, and even so much so that we get, we get preyed on, not like prayed for, prayed on, because people understand that our envy will get us, and so they make their thumbnails and their descriptions around, look at how much better I am than you. Look at how much better my life is. Maybe you could be like this, right? 
And then one day we come to the realization because hopefully we're trying to walk in right relationship with God. And he's like, you don't need that. Like, I'll be enough. And so we repent of our envy and God says, cool, I got it. I'll carry it, right? And then maybe it's, maybe it's just honesty, right? Maybe this is like the thing that you wrestle with is just telling the truth. And so because you're afraid of hurting people's feelings, because you're afraid of having to navigate a difficult conversation or dealing with the consequences, you develop the habit of just telling lie after lie after lie. And you tell yourself, well, it's just to protect the other person, or it's just so that I don't have to navigate the situation. And we become more and more dishonest. And then one day, walking in right relationship with God, maybe we're reading the word or we're in a Sunday service and we go, man, I got a problem. Like, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to tell the truth. And we say, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And God says, no problem, right? We're in covenant. I told you I've got it. I'll carry it. And so God now is walking around carrying all of these sins, right? And then we think we're over it. And then we're wrestling with anger, right? I I could literally have 100 boxes up here to talk about all of the different ways that we bring sin into our relationships and I could give a hundred boxes over to God and he would say, I'll carry it. You, you've got a problem with anger. We're going to learn, I'm going to, we're going to learn how to let go of anger and, and all that, that you're doing that wrecks the world around you. I'm going to forgive you for it. And I'm going to be the one that carries that. And then hopefully what happens is we begin to walk in right relationship with God. But unfortunately for most of us, that's not what happens. What happens is, one day we are out maybe with some friends or maybe we're by ourselves and there's a moment where a temptation is presented and we think to ourselves, you know what? I really miss, I really miss the feeling that I would get when I was trapped in that lust. And maybe you think to yourself like, well, it won't really hurt if I have this like, friendship with this other person, or maybe it's, hey, well, what will it hurt if I look at porn one more time, right? What, what, what will it hurt if I just give over to it one more time? The problem is that in order for me to do that, I have to come back to the God that's carrying it and saying, God, hey, look, I appreciate what you're doing, but I'm going to need this, right? And then I've got it back in my hands, and I'm like, oh man, all right, well, that wasn't so bad. Like I did it one time or we had one conversation. Nobody got hurt, right? So it becomes a second time and a third time and and I'm still going to church and I'm still doing my life and I'm still, like I'm still here, right? I'm at the base of the mountain. God's presence is right there. It's all good and I've got what I need right here. And then all of a sudden, whatever it is that you're doing, your spouse catches you, right? And then you're beginning to panic. And so you're like, oh God, I'm gonna need this one too, Uh because there's no way I can tell her the truth. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need this one too, because I can't be honest right now, because if I'm honest, it's going to create a lot of heartache. And what about my kids? What about my friends? What about the people at my church? The people at my church, if they find out that I'm doing this stuff, I can't let anybody know about this. And what is that really uh, a result of? That's a result of the fact that all along, you had come and grabbed this one, because you had too much pride to admit that you were struggling with your own problems. And so the process walks out like this, and this is the problem, is that God looks down and God says, this doesn't work. I'm willing to carry all of this, but you just have to keep putting it on me. Because what will not be tolerated is for the covenant to be maintained with you being the one that's doing all the heavy lifting. You guys give it up for Walt. No pressure here. Can he do it? I mean, he is in God's shoes right now, right? (laughs) So the picture here for us is that he is eternally available to carry your sin forever and ever. He'll carry your sin. He'll carry your failures. He'll be the one that will put it on his shoulders and he'll carry it for you. Now, I will tell you this. This is really difficult to get our heart and our minds around the younger we are. Because the younger that we are, the, the, the more invincible that we believe we are, right? 
We, we, we aren't at a place in our lives where we're thinking about the fact that, hey, this race is going to come to an end. When we're young, we don't have a lot of people who we're accountable to or accountable for. And so we think to ourselves, like, who am I really hurting? And the problem is, is that we just create bad habits. And, and I wish that, 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 that there was some, like, magic pill I could give to young people to help them kind of see where they're going to be at some point. But at some point, they're going to be on the other side of this thing going, man, I wish I was free of this stuff. I wish I had never gotten wrapped up inside of it. And so he says, I will forgive. And then we continue here. He says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? So he says, he goes from love to forgiveness to what? To saying, I'm not going to clear the guilty. How are we not guilty? We are not guilty when he's carrying the sin, when we give it to him. That's, that's the position of forgiveness. You, you understand? So forgiveness is not this thing where it's like, okay, and, and this might seem a little bit harsh, but I want you to get a picture. Forgiveness is not this thing where it's like, well, I just come and I say a little prayer down on my knees. And because I said that prayer, it's like everything's right in the world. That's not the picture of what forgiveness is. That's a picture of repentance, right? And repentance, the, the measure of whether or not you're forgiven based on what we're seeing here is not a matter of what I said, but a matter of whether or not I let it go. Because he can't carry something that I'm a dead weight on, that I've got my arms wrapped around. I can say all day long, you know, hey, God, you can have this thing, right? You know what I'm saying? But if I've got it like this, he, he, he's not taking it. That's not what forgiveness is. It's like, I'm coming, I'm going to beat you down and take it from you. No, it's like, I'm going to carry it. So give it to me and allow me to carry it. And I think a lot of times we can kind of just think, oh, all I got to do is say this little prayer and it's all going to be good. It's all going to be okay. No, it's actually simpler than that. It is when you let go of it and you let him carry it. Now, where do we see this as, as an example? Well, we see this in Exodus 32, right? When we go back to the story that leads us into this, what do we see? We see the children of Israel and they are not doing what they have not let go of their old ways. God said, I'll forgive you. I'll carry all of your sins, all of your transgressions. And what do they do? They, in the midst of the absolute power and might of God say, nah, we need to do it the way we used to do it. And God says, I'm not going to clear the guilty. I'm not just going to I'm not just going to pretend like this doesn't matter because this is what happens when we pretend like it doesn't matter, when we allow people to be in rebellion around us and we just ignore it. What we communicate is that it doesn't matter, not just to them but to everybody else. So if I have one kid, I have four in the house, right? So if I have one kid who is operating in rebellion, right? And I just let that one kid operate in rebellion. I'm not just letting that kid operate in rebellion. I'm letting all of my other children think that it's okay to operate in rebellion. A couple of weeks ago, we were in the house and Zoe was having a meltdown and he was screaming at his sister. And I come out and I'm like, uh, I'm sitting here having this conversation and I'm trying to talk to him about the fact that we don't talk to each other this way, right? And of course, what does he have? He has his version, right? But, but dad, you don't know what she was doing. Now, unfortunately, at this point, it didn't really matter what she was doing because the fact that he was screaming was my issue, right? That's what brought me out here was his attitude. And I said, I want you to listen for just a moment. I said, does anybody else in this house yell like that? And right before he could answer, I kid you not, from the back of the house, at the top of his lungs, I hear Isaac start screaming and yelling. And I walk back there and he's playing a video game and he is giving it the what for, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I walk back there and he's like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, it's really difficult for me to ask Zoe not to scream and yell when you're back here screaming and yelling, right? You know what I'm saying? And, and it was funny. And we've laughed and laughed and laughed at the fact that it was like the perfect timing. But the truth is, I had to navigate both of those situations in that moment. Or one, it looked like I don't care. Or two, it looked like I only cared what one kid did. And so as an act of love, God cannot clear the guilty. Because God needs us as his children to understand it's a better way. And so the guilty are the ones that are still carrying their sin. And we're going to wrap up here 
with this really, really hard verse, this, or the hard, this hard ending in the verse, right? And this is one of those that, uh, that kind of is the punch in the gut, right? So God says that this is who I am, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So what's going through your mind right now, right? It's like, whoa. So if my dad sinned a lot and God's going to get him for it, then he's going to get me for it. And he's going to get my kids for it. And he's going to get my grandkids for it. And I want to remind you that we have a responsibility to actually look at Scripture through the lens of the writers, not through our own personal lens. And so a lot of people would argue that this is talking about generational punishment, but I'm going to say that it probably doesn't mean that. And I'll do this real quickly for you. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So we're getting some law here. And God says, this is the manner in which that we bring forth instruction. Exodus 18, verse 20, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do talking about your children this is an, there's an individual expectation that sets on each person and so if we see this right being taught in scripture and even inside of the same uh, book by the same author then we're going to have to deduce that this is probably not trying to communicate that god is coming for our children or our grandchildren because of our actions Okay, this is probably God communicating that he will be persistent in his pursuit. If your kids don't get it, then I'll pursue their kids, right? That I will do it, I will pursue and hold the same standard regardless of whether they're your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. Why? Because your favor or your disobedience is not going to become the blanket or covering for the next generation. Where have we seen this? We see this in Exodus 32, coming right out of the same story. Where had these people learned to act like this? They had learned to act like this because of mom and dad and grandparents before them. And God says, it doesn't matter where you learned your rebellion or where it is that you picked up your sin, where you got all those little containers of all the little fleeting moments of happiness that you have. It doesn't matter where you got them from. The same expectation sets on your shoulders. And so the message of love and covenant is one that is about God and you. Let's stand to our feet this morning. It is a message of how God is interacting with you. And I want to tell you that you might be fighting through emotions sometimes when it comes to breaking broken relationships. One thing I'll say that I just want to be really sensitive about is that I know that there are a number of you who have even walked through, through, through not just broken relationships, but some of you have walked through divorce. And each of you have a different story to tell of how that, that impacted you, impacted your family, your, 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 your kids, your parents. And I, I can't imagine... I was very, very young when my mom and dad divorced, and I was very fortunate to have a woman come into my life and adopt me and become my mom. And, and so when I talk about my mom, I'm, I'm talking about this woman who came in when I was very young, following a divorce, and began to model a different way. She began to model a different way of living. You see, my biological mom went out, partied, and came home pregnant from another man. That led to a divorce. And what's interesting in the story for me is that that divorce was actually not a divorce that my dad sought. My dad sought reconciliation, but it was my biological mom who continued to want to live that lifestyle. You see, she didn't want to let God carry anything. And so God blessed me with a new mom. And I'm going to tell you, like, that's as close as I get to the, to the narrative of divorce. But I, I do know this. I do know that the emotions that you feel, right, leading up to it, walking through it, 
after it. Like all those things that you're feeling, that's, that's, that's a part of how we're designed. Flawed or not flawed, it's uh, the condition of who we are in this fallen world. And I want to encourage you that, that what God wants to do is God wants to help you pick up the pieces. If he can restore your broken marriage, that's, that's, his, that's his plan. And if he can't restore the broken marriage, then what he's going to do is he's, gonna, he's just going to restore you. And he's going to move in ways that you just can't imagine and do things that are unbelievable. Why? Because, you see, he loves you. And it doesn't mean that he's happy with you all the time. It doesn't mean that in every moment he's got that feel-good, laughter, joy thing going. No, 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 no. It means that he's in covenant with you. And love looks like this. I love you today. I might not like you, but I love you. And I'm going to see this through. And I'm going to figure this thing out. And so whether it's a best friend, a co-worker, or somebody that we're married to, God wants us to be the image of love in this world. He wants that from all of us. And I believe we can walk that out. Amen? Amen. Right now, if we could just all across the room, bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. I want to give us an opportunity to respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing. If you're in this place today and the first step, the first thing that needs to happen is that you repent before God. And and what I mean is that you let go of some things so that he can forgive you. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. First, maybe the thing that needs to happen is, is that you make a declaration to him of faith. You see, we have to enter into the covenant. And we enter into the covenant very simply, and that is by believing in our hearts, confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. Scripture says that we will be saved. We will be brought into the new covenant. We will be covered by the blood of the lamb. And this process of love will be enacted on us and God will be there to carry your past transgressions, your hurts, your failures. He'll pick it all up. He'll carry it. He'll start working with you to find freedom, to be a better and new person. He'll help you step into community, find new peer groups, new avenues of life and hobbies, all the things that will shape you to be a better person. He'll be there to be a part of that, but it starts with you entering into that covenant. And we do that through what we call salvation. And that is that simple prayer, Jesus be Lord of my life. And so if you're in here today and that's you, heads bowed, our eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around, nobody's judging you. This isn't a matter of judgment. But if that's you and you say, I need to, I need to repent of some of these. I need to come and make Jesus Lord of my life right now. I need to make that declaration. I want to do that with you. And if you would just raise your hand like I'm raising mine right now, I just want to be in that moment of prayer with you right now. Amen. I see those hands. Praise God. Amen. Amen. You can put your hands down. So if you raise your hand, I just, right now, just... In your heart, I want you to pray this prayer. Father, I surrender everything in my life to you right now. I've made a mess of it on my own, and I know that I need your son, Jesus. And so I declare Jesus, Lord of my life. Father, have your way. I commit my days to your will every day. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen and amen. Guys, can we just... Just give a shout of praise for those that made that decision this morning. We don't take that lightly. And can I tell you, it's not something you have to do every week. It's something, you're not constantly coming back to this place of salvation. Once we walk in the covenant, God is there with you. He is, he is for you. He is not against you. And, and the next thing is, is that you learn how to repent and let go of some things. And I'm not telling you that it's easy. Can I tell you, I have gone back to God and picked up plenty of those boxes myself and said, God, I need that for a moment. But, but as I have walked in relationship with him, I have learned that it never serves me, that he's always right that just one more time is just one inch closer to heartache and pain and 
I don't want anything to do with it. And so if you're in this place today as we close, and we're gonna take a moment to sing together, but if you're in here with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want you to focus on the heavens right now. Focus on the throne room of God. And if there are things in your life that you need to be repenting of and you need to be saying, Father, I'm sorry, forgive me, and you need him to reach down and to carry some stuff for you today, some burdens that you just haven't let go of, some sins that you just keep going back to, you need to release them to him today. Release them to the, to, to, to the very cross that bore Jesus. Let go of them. If that's you, I want you right now just to pray with me all over this place. Father, we come and we ask you to do what only you can do, and that is forgive us. Father, forgive me for my failures. Forgive me for those moments and my own arrogance and my own pride. I walk in sin. I disregard your word and I disregard your community and I disregard your expectations. And God, I see the heartache that it brings, not just to me, but to the people I do life with. And so today I'm letting go and I'm giving it to you. Help me to be a better person, capable of walking in relationships with the people that I care about in my marriage, in my friendships, at work. Help me to be a better person so that I can model relationship the way that you would have me to model it. In your mighty name, Father, we come and we ask these things right now, Lord, have your way. Amen and amen and amen. Guys, before you leave, take a moment and sing with us. Thanks so much for joining us online. We hope you were impacted by the word of God you heard today. We want to help you navigate your next steps if you made a decision for Christ today or simply need prayer. If you want more information about our church, visit us online at citychurch.life. If you didn't get a chance to give online during service and would like to contribute financially, you can go to citychurch.life forward slash give. We look forward to hearing from you and seeing you at church.